How can someone be sure, be certain, be 100% confident that when we die, when you die, when I die, we will be with Christ? How can we know for sure? Depending on the way we were raised, the church involvement or lack of, the way we grew up, what we were taught, we might have different opinions, different understandings of what this means to be saved once for all. Once saved, always saved. Or can we lose our salvation? Is it possible to believe and then not believe, to go off track and not know for sure? Is it possible to know with certainty where we will spend eternity? Many people are uncertain about the personal work of Christ. We've heard a lot of things in our early years, perhaps from a religion we attended, a denomination, a religious school, a class, a book we read. There are perhaps more divergent opinions on how to get to heaven, paradise, Erewhon, nirvana than imaginable. So how can we say with some kind of confidence that this is the way, the truth, and the life? This is in fact the way you know for sure where you will spend all of eternity. Sometimes we have a misfortunate view of Jesus or a confusing view of Jesus. We know he's an important figure. We know he probably did some things, but we don't really understand the breadth of who he is and what he's done. And he is a man who is claiming to be Messiah. He's a man who's going to die on a cross for sinners. And he's a man that's going to offer eternal life. How can we know for sure, for certain? Sometimes we come to God with this in mind and we look at the way God works in life, quote unquote, and we don't like it, so we're demanding of God. We've talked about this many times before. I could never believe in a God who fill in the blank, lets children die of AIDS, who lets children die of starvation. I can never believe in a God who allows violence to go on against women. I can never believe in a God who lets children become victims all over the world. I can never believe in a God who is unfair, unjust, doesn't do the things the way I think he should be doing it. And there's many tangents we can look at, but when we come to this part of the story and the narrative of the Gospel of John, we're coming to the cross. Christ is hanging on the cross in this narrative. He's dying. And the exchange he has with two individuals, although a brief passage this morning, is a convincing passage to me, and I hope to you, that Christ is going to tell a man precisely where he will be for all eternity. Open your Bible to Luke chapter 23, verse 39. Luke 23, verse 39, we begin the text. And we'll see here Christ speaking to the criminals that he is numbered with dying on a cross. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you shall be with me in paradise. There's some parallels we need to understand in the way Luke has arranged his gospel under the Holy Spirit's intention. 
when we have the temptation account, for example, Jesus will go 40 days into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He will fast that entire time. He'll be harassed by Satan. And if we looked at each of the temptation accounts, we could draw many lessons. But at the highest level, what Satan is telling him to do, if you're God, use your resources to fix your situation. Turn those stones into bread. If you're God, use your resources to help yourself. Use your resources to save yourself. And the wilderness encounter, that 40 days, is illustrative of Israel's 40 years. It's also illustrative of Christ completing a, what we'd say, humanly exhausting experience to endure temptation at the lowest point of his humanity. And in that temptation account, of course, he does not fall into sin. He then comes out and is filled with God's Spirit. We have a very similar thing happening on the cross. Christ has been, has been slandered, arrested, unfairly treated, mocked, beaten, tried illegally, and now hangs nailed to a cross dying. And the mocking and the insults from different groups are the same exact thing. If you're God, do something about it, the religious leaders say. Come off the cross, prove your Messiah. So man is demanding God in flesh, if you're God, prove it. And Christ, as the God-man, has got, we might say, a choice to make in this process. This passage is going to tell us that Jesus Christ is the God-man, and he's telling a man precisely what he must do and believe to know that he will be forever with him. Now, the two criminals from Matthew and Mark have a little more encounter than just what we record here, and what Luke records. And if you're in a community group, again, we write questions that parallel the sermon so you can go a little deeper than we can in 35 minutes or so. But Luke's record just records sort of the bad criminal, good criminal, if you will, and how they're relating to Christ. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. What's he saying? Prove that you're God and get me off this cross. Because I am dying, really. Why don't you save yourself and us too, if you're who you say you are? Now we need to talk a bit about the word saved. It's one of those Bible words that means everything, therefore it means nothing. What does it mean to be saved? The word simply means to be delivered from death delivered from death. It's used in the New Testament in a variety of ways. You can be on a, a, a sea and a storm about to die. You can be ill about to die. And to be saved is to be delivered from death. Now these men on a cross are literally dying. They're not asking for eternal salvation, the way we think of saved. They're saying what? I don't want to die. Save me. All saved means is to be saved from certain death. But as with all miracles in the Bible, the physical illustration is really a spiritual point. If he can give a blind man a set of eyes, we're spiritually blind, we're physically blind, no, we're spiritually blind, we're physically deaf, no, spiritually deaf, we're, you see the point. So all of these are spiritually making a larger point. So when we use the word saved, we're talking about death, but not just dying and going in the grave. We're talking about eternal death, and salvation then is eternal life. Verses 40 to 41 again, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation 
And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Don't you fear God? How can you, a convicted criminal, keep in mind in our terms, these are felonious criminals where the capital punishment was the treatment. Whatever they did deserved death. They were murderers, they were rapists, they were robbers, they were horrendous criminals such that the crime wasn't prison time, the crime was death. So they're dying on either side of him, flanked by this cross, and the one says, you're, you're mocking him. Don't you even fear God in the face of death? What are you thinking? But his theology runs pretty deep for a convicted criminal. We are suffering justly. What we did, we deserved the punishment we're receiving. But he did nothing wrong. The phrase sentence of condemnation is interesting. It's as though the judge has issued the verdict. We're under the judge's verdict and there is no appeal. Why in the world would you insult God when you're dying for what you deserve? We are justly being killed and he's done nothing wrong. There's a great exchange between uh, Tim Robbins who plays Andy Dufresne and Morgan Freeman, who plays Ellis Boyd Red Redding in The Shawshank Redemption. They, of course, are, you don't talk about why you're in prison until you know each other well. And at one point, Andy finally asks Red, what about you? What are you in here for? Red says, murder, same as you. Andy says, innocent? And Red shakes his head, only guilty man in Shawshank. You got a whole population of convicts that say, I was framed. I am innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. It was somebody else's fault. I'm not guilty. I didn't do a crime. Every person that goes to prison, I am innocent. I am wrongly convicted. The, there, I was framed, right? No one says, I'm the only guilty man in Shawshank. Illustrative of human, humankind. I'm innocent. I'm not as bad as somebody else. I haven't done what they've done. Compared to sinners who are far worse than me, I'm pretty good. It's human nature to dodge, to blame, to dismiss, to shift responsibility, and to avoid our acknowledgement of sin. The humble man owns his sin. The humble woman acknowledges his or her sinfulness, and we don't blame others. Now, it's easy to miss the obvious. I love the way the criminal states it. We are receiving what we deserve. He admits his guilt. He acknowledges his responsibility. And he doesn't blame anyone. Think about that as a parent. Wouldn't it be nice if your children admitted their guilt, took responsibility, and then blamed somebody? Why, you'd have the most perfect parenting situation in the world. We would, we would write books about you. This is how you do it. I did it, Dad. It's my fault. I'm sorry. What, what should I do to make it right? Oh, Father of mine, here I am to serve you. What would you like for me to do for you today? That's our fantasy, right? The reason our children are so difficult is because we're looking in a mirror. Because we are sinners just the same. We are receiving what we deserve. It's the humility of a person that says, I was wrong. I wonder what criminal cases would be like. Some of you in the legal world, can you imagine if criminals admitted to their crime 
how different the system would be, how quickly justice would prevail, how little money we would spend on these long protracted trials, and how lenient the sentences would be. I did it. I was wrong. I was culpable. I can't blame anybody else. I chose to do that. It'd be a whole different world. But see, we're not humble when, we're, when we sin. The juxtaposition is not just the criminal. It's that he's recognizing Jesus is innocent. Verse 41, but this man has done nothing wrong. The just dying for the unjust. The sinless dying for the sinful. The guiltless dying for the guilty. And it's all according to God's plan. When the criminal says this, the other criminal is now silent in all the records of the gospel. Verse 42, he now turns to Jesus. He was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember, it's not as though Jesus is going to forget. The language is simply saying, at a future time, will you bring me along with you? Remember me when you come into this situation. Be gracious to me in the future. Can you do that for me? Christ's response, truly I say to you, you shall be with me in paradise. Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. You see, this criminal knew something about Messiah. He knew enough about Jesus to know he was innocent. He knew enough about Jesus he was wrongly accused. He knew enough about Jesus to know that he had a kingdom. And he wanted to be part of that kingdom. And he asks, will you remember me? In a future time, will you be gracious to me? Because I need you. I'm desperate. I'm dying in my sin. Now, for those of you who study the Bible, devotions, morning, evening, you're a person that likes to dig in, I've got a little assignment for you. Go home and study truly and truly, truly in the New Testament Gospels, just the four Gospels. Go see the times Jesus says true, truly, and truly, truly. It'll rock your world. Look at the passage and look at the context before and after when Jesus says truly and truly, truly, I say to you. And what you're going to see as you unpack those wonderful, delicious stories are the eternal, profound nature of what Christ is saying. Truly, I say to do, you will be in paradise. You can count on it. Everything you've believed, set it aside. Trust me on this one. Truly, I'm telling you something. This has eternal gravity. Nothing can change what I'm about to say to you. Every time it's used, it's a wonderful study to encourage you in the way Jesus speaks to people as well as to you and me. Well, the criminal asked for a future remembrance. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. But Jesus' answer, of course, is immediate today. You'll be with me in paradise. Now, perhaps you, like me, were raised in a culture. I've talked to folks last night and after the early service, raised in a similar culture where you were taught about purgatory. Purgatory is a place where you go after you die and you suffer for your sins that you did not uh, receive proper forgiveness for or that you must be punished for. A typical definition from the Catholic world is a middle state of souls suffering for a time on account of their sins so that as such as died in lesser sins shall not escape without punishment so that those that die with lesser sins won't escape without punishment 
So as I was taught, when you die, if you do everything right in this life, you still go to a place called purgatory where you suffer for a period of time to pay for the sins. You're refined. You're be, they're being burned off. It's like a, a, a temporary hell before you get to go to heaven. And many of us were raised in that tradition. I only bring that up because of what Christ is saying here. After you've been in purgatory, you'll be in? No, today. Today you'll be with me. This man does not crawl off the cross and go make restitution. This man doesn't get off the cross and get baptized. This man doesn't get off the cross and join a church and become a missionary. This man does one thing. He dies. And Christ says, today you will be with me in paradise. But there's more. More even than just today. Notice verse 43, with me, Jesus says with me. Now, as romantic as it would seem, you have to use a little bit of your brain matter thinking about the future. If heaven was merely being reunited with loved ones and living forever in the Garden of Eden, I would go insane. <laughs> Think of one long church potluck that never ended. <laughs> and let's just say that you like people you don't like now. I mean, let's just say we all get along. Think of the boredom and monotony of living forever, eating figs and dates and playing harps on clouds. Put a gun to your head, right? We have really bad pictures of heaven. When you and I see the Christ, you and I will be so blown away with the eternal work of the God-man king the things of the earth won't go strangely dim. They'll be gone. And your orientation of worshiping Christ forever and seeing who he is and what he's done, not only for you, but for all who will be part of the family of God, will be a mind-blowing, otherworldly experience that all kinds of authors are pretending they know what heaven is like. I love John on Patmos Island. When he saw the angel of the Lord, he fell on his face like a dead man. And we will. We have no concept. What? It would be eternal existential insanity to just live forever. But it's with Christ, the one who loves you, who created you, in a perfect environment where we're building a world that it blows, it blows explanation away. Part of a kingdom that lasts forever responsibilities, duties. There'll be things we're engaged in, all to point to him. And we have to erase our constructs of what we think would be a great thing in the end as we retire and live in our Colorado veranda or our lake house, or whatever it is we think that's what heaven would be like and say, no, this world is at best a clean bus station. And we're heading for an undiscovered country in a new place. We'll be with Christ. Now, Paul, uh, Luke uses the word paradesos here, where we get paradise. Now you know the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. Hebrew was translated into Greek when Greek was the common language of the world. You with me? That becomes known as the Septuagint. Hebrew Old Testament, mostly, is translated into Greek, the Septuagint. If we translate it into English, we call it English Bible. It was called the Septuagint. 
Now, the Septuagint introduced words that they couldn't quite translate from the Hebrew into the Greek language, just like we do. Illustration, not precisely, but it makes the point. We decline verbs. Go, went, gone. Where does went come from? It should be go, goad, gone. But teachers don't like us to say, I'm goad to the store. So we, I went to the store. Where does went come from? There's no letter that sounds like go or going or gone. Went? We call it a suppletion. Now, when you have certain words that don't translate the gap, you transliterate them or you come up with a new way of doing it. Well, they brought this Persian word for paradise into Greek and made a word out of it, paradisios or paradosos. And that word simply means something like a garden or more importantly, a future bliss. So when Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, I don't think he's precisely referring to the Garden of Eden. If you want to do that, fine. I don't think either one of us can prove our point. I don't think it's a garden context literally only. I think it's more the metaphor of an Eden where there's no sin, all provisions, and intimacy with God. And that is the picture of the future. Well, a number of lessons, four to be precise. Number one, believers who die are immediately present with the Lord. Believers who die are immediately present with the Lord. This uh, changes the view of some who hold to soul sleep. And when you die, your soul is asleep somewhere until the future resurrection. Uh, this criminal who dies, a convicted felon, capital punishment, is told by Jesus, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paul wrote in Philippians 1.23, I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is very much better. He wants to die. Now, this isn't a death wish. He's tired of living, but he has an idea what his future will be like with Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. We want to leave this, and there's the conflict in 1 Corinthians 15 about, about not, uh, chapter 5, about not wanting to be unclothed. We don't want to die. We fear that threshold of being unclothed, but, but we know we have to be absent from the body to be at home with the Lord. When you were in Elementary school, probably, you sat in desks that were alpha-oriented, A, B, C. You went down the road, and the teacher could look down and take a quick roll and see who was in the class. And, oh, look, there's Johnny's not there. He's what? Absent. And we all think, oh, Johnny's got a cold or a flu or he's faking out, lying to his mom or on a trip. He's absent. But what does that mean? He's somewhere else. We don't worry that Johnny's chair is empty. He's just absent from school, and he's present somewhere else. And when we die, we're absent from this world and at home with the Lord. When the believer dies, he or she is immediately in Christ's presence. This past week ago, uh, Friday and Saturday, I went to Dallas to participate in Howard Hendricks' funeral and memorial service, and we had a small family and a few invited friends to the grave and then side on Friday and then the memorial was Saturday at Stonebriar Community Church in Dallas. Howard Hendricks, it, it would take uh, several hours for me to tell you about him. If you get the first and third, there's a little piece about him. If you don't receive that, you can subscribe to get that, that we wrote about the prof and some links to some of his life. But um, 
Mark Bailey, who's the president of Dallas Seminary, who, by the way, will be here this summer uh, preaching one weekend for us. Uh, Mark Bailey and I stood at the foot of this grave. They, um, they uh, asked, Gene wanted to see the coffin lowered in the ground. So the workers moved the astroturf away and the tent away and the chairs away and all the two by sixes that support the, the uh, rack to drop the coffin down. And um, they let the body down and they pulled the little system away. And Mark Bailey and I stood there looking at a precisionly dug hole with a concrete bottom on it for the vault and Prof's plain flat brown coffin. Roots sticking out from where they had dug big trees. Mark looked at it and he said, when we die, three men in hard hats are going to lower us in a hole in the ground and put dirt on top of us. Wept like schoolboys. Just sobbed like little baby boys. And they had a front loader, put the top of the vault on it, backfilled it with dirt. Those guys do it how many times a day? He's not there. He's with Christ. He's absent. He's not here. He's not on the end of the phone anymore. I can't go see him anymore. But he's present with Christ because he had a relationship with Christ. Secondly, we have to admit our guilt before we see our need. We have to admit our guilt before we see our need. We are a stubborn, proud people. That's why we blame others for our problems. That's why we always say, it's, well, I did this because so-and-so. Rarely do we say, I was wrong. It's my fault. Will you forgive me? Last time you had an argument with your spouse. Think about it. You argued over some dumb thing like directions. Cindy and I, the only time we argue is about directions. And we can really argue. I thought you knew where we were going. Well, I've been there once before. And we get in this huge fight on the way to church or something, you know. Or a wedding or something. We're fighting like cats and dogs. Like, why do we fight about directions all the time? Because we blame each other because it's your fault you don't know where we're going. And we both have GPSs and this nonsense. We still can't find our way around. <laughs> so we argue about it. Whose fault is it? You know, it just takes one of us saying, I'm going to get the directions before we go out the door. That's where it starts. You see, somebody has to admit, my fault. I'm wrong. But we don't like to do that. But we have to admit our guilt before we see our need. And if you are a self-sufficient man or woman, you don't need God. If you're a self-sufficient man or woman, you use your resources to take care of yourself. But when you're hanging on a cross dying, you have no resources. When you're under chemo and radiation and they're cutting you up, and you're sick as a dog, you have no resources. When your sons or daughters are breaking your hearts and making horrible decisions, you have no resources. And you come humbly. I, I deserve my condemnation. I'm a sinner. I have no right to ask you for anything. Will you help me? 
You have to admit your guilt before you see your need. Thirdly, we are fools if we do not fear God. Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I've been reading this past week about atheism at great length. There is a new atheism. God help us, no pun intended. And to see what these people write about, it's, it's, it's torture to read what they write. Not only the anger, but the sadness, the arrogance, the view that their food for worms is all we are. They were not image bearers of God. All men are created in the image of God. We have a conscience because of that. We can sear the conscience, we can sin, we can live in sin and become calloused, but we still know right from wrong. We know murder is wrong. We know rape is wrong. We know a pedophile should be prosecuted. We know a DUI who runs across a median and hits a family broadsided that all has their seatbelts on and kills those children and parents. That's wrong. We know a man who takes a gun into a bank and holds it up or kills kids in a school. It's wrong. There is a moral conscience, even in a pagan. And it's not because we're a little higher than the apes. It's because we're made in the image of God. We can sear that conscience. We can fight it off. We can push it off. We can repress it. But it still comes up at certain times, proving that we know a differentiation. We're made in the image of God. That's one of many things we could talk about. The fool represses his guilt. The fool blows foam over those things and calls them tragedies and existential nihilism and all this palaver. Don't let the world teach you about God. Don't let the world teach you about your God. If you fear nothing at death, you ought to fear death itself. And if you fear God at death, you need fear nothing. Fourth, intrinsic power is in the story of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. There's intrinsic power in just the story. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. I've often wondered about that. Why doesn't he preach Christ resurrected? No, we preach Christ crucified because the crucifixion is the power. Because he overcomes death. We often tell the story that Jesus lived, that he died, that he was buried. Buried confirms the death, and he's resurrected. This giant cross in front of you reminding us that he died for your sins and mine in our place instead of us. And there's power in that story every time it's told. One believes it, one dismisses it. One trusts him, one distrusts. One demands, God, if you're God, you will come off that cross and save you and me. You'll save my kids. You'll do this, you'll do that. You'll be fair. You'll end war. You'll put certain politicians in an office at all. You'll make the world a better place to live. We'll have green energy and sustainability. We put all these presuppositions on how God should be according to our image, not his. When we live in a fallen estate that is getting worse and worse. Because when Adam fell, he fell far doesn't mean we throw our hands up and play chicken little. If there were three circles up here, one that had a C in it, one that has a W plus C, and one that has a W, are you trusting in Christ, Christ plus works, or just works to get you to heaven? 
Are you trusting in Christ alone, works alone, or Christ and works to get you to heaven? It's amazing how many people who've grown up in good Bible teaching churches will say, Christ plus works. I, I, I know Jesus died for me, but I have to do my part. I know he paid for my sins, but I've got to do my part. And then the question becomes, how much of your part are you contributing? Because if he didn't sufficiently take care of your sin problem and mine, how do we know when we're ever good enough? On a good day, maybe I'm going to heaven. Most days, I'm not going to heaven. How do I ever know? He died in our place on our behalf instead of us so that we don't have to. He paid for your sins in full, and he tells a man convicted of a felony. Let's just say he was a murderer, a man who's being killed for committing murder. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. What did that man do? What did he do? He believed in Christ. He trusted that he was the Messiah. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? He acknowledged that he was the God-man. That's all it required. No baptism, no church membership, no walking an aisle, no praying a prayer, no making restitution. Today, you will be with me in paradise. If you never come to that place in your journey, your life, your figuring things out, don't believe it because I'm telling you it. Believe it because Jesus is telling it to a convicted criminal. Only guilty man on the planet. You can know for sure. He lived, he died, he was buried. He comes back from the dead and he offers any and all forgiveness of sin, salvation, eternal life with him forever. And the strength of the world will not go strangely dim. They'll be gone. The life of sin and shame and suffering and regret and what if and if only and all the injustices that happened to you and me times a million are gone. That's how great his salvation is. If you don't know for sure, you know that you know that you know that you know where you will spend all of eternity, I can tell you on the authority of Jesus Christ's own words, if you put your trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, he will forgive you of your sins and grant you eternal life. That is why we exist as a church, to help people understand what it means to know he lived, he died, he was buried, and he came back from the dead. And any and all who put their trust in him are guaranteed a free gift called eternal life. Why would one resist that offer? You proud? Do something for me, then I'll believe you. Be merciful to me, the sinner. If you want to know more, you can take your program on the way out today and just put your name and contact and we'd be delighted to talk with you more about what it means so that you know that you know that you know that you know where you'll spend all of eternity. Father, thank you that your word is true and reliable, regardless of what religions or denominations have told us as children and even adults. We want to err on the side of you and your word, trusting your word. You have given it to us to read. It is available for anyone who can learn to read. It's not that complicated. 
but we make it so. Help us to see both the depth and profound nature of the word, but also the simplicity that you offer us a free gift simply by faith, by trust, by believing in what Christ has done. We pray in his name. Amen. God bless you. Have an extraordinary week.